with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, everybody, welcome to the Phronesis Podcast. Thank you for checking in. And this is another one of those episodes where my co-host today is Jonathan Reams. And Jonathan, good to have you with me, sir. It's good to be here with you, Scott. Oh, this is going to be a fun conversation. Today we have Eva Verdalia, and Eva is a PhD. She is the founding principal of Requisite Development LLC. Eva has a multifaceted career as an educator, consultant, and executive coach. She enables senior leaders and organizations to navigate and sustain large-scale complex change by helping them to build deep thinking, leadership, and decision-making capabilities. Eva is also a visiting clinical professor at Loyola and Marquette University Schools of Business, where she teaches graduate courses in organizational ethics, strategic change, leadership, and human resources development. But, um, you know, it's so fun to have you here. I know you're in Croatia today. It's a fascinating topic, not one that I have explored deeply, but I know it's important. Again, for listeners, something I love about this whole experience, and I said this to Tony Middlebrooks recently as we kind of reflected on 150 episodes, this project has taken my conversations to so many areas where I just don't have any level of knowledge yet, whether it's uh, Maori ways of knowing and that that whole world of indigenous perspectives on leadership i mean that's a, that's a whole world of knowledge and it could be transfer of training principles you know i've spoken with folks who they've been studying that for 30 years 
this is another topic that I, I intuitively know is very, very important, but I don't know a lot about it. So I'm very, very excited to explore Eva's chapter today, Jonathan. Yeah, uh, I am too. So the background for me was that I read Eva's PhD dissertation. And when the opportunity to put this anthology together came up, Eva was high on my list of people to get to contribute something. Now, I had to do some arm twisting (laughs) because it was like any of us. It's work to condense a PhD down to a book chapter. But I was super motivated because, you know, I'd encountered Otto Lasky's work and Michael Bassish's work. So I knew a little bit of the context you were working in, Eva. But maybe as a starting place, could you say a very brief, I know you have this fantastic, amazing background. Could you just give us a little bit of personal context? And then what were the reasons that you wanted to take on doing a PhD? Well, you know, it goes back to my childhood when I was four or five years old, I wanted to be a teacher. And why I wanted to be a teacher, because I was fascinated by people who who could think, who who appeared very smart. And that time I was living in a totalitarian society. And I was frustrated, even as a child, I was very frustrated with that single-mindedness and that ideological environments that was forcing people into a specific way of thinking and believing in certain things that I didn't feel like I was agreeing with. And that led me to really find escape in reading. So I was reading a lot, everything I could. And this was where I developed, I felt the tension between the outer world and inner world. And that tension just grew louder and louder and stronger and stronger as I was growing up. So that notion of being able to think permeated really my childhood. And I felt like this is something that should probably be (laughs) engraved on my gravestone. If people could only think better. Mm. That was a thought that led me to that uh, that road of discovery and and education. And I had a grandmother who was absolutely phenomenal. She was instrumental in helping me and providing that safety net for me to educate myself and and move beyond my current environment, my current reality, and to really dream about the greener postures. That led me into an international career later, and that's how I ended up in the United States. So I'm going to skip all that (laughs) journey (laughs) brought me to an adulthood and and arrival to Chicago, where I uh, decided to pursue education and forget all about my European background and European baggage. So Mm. I went to study at DePaul University uh, of my undergrad. And this program was designed for adult learners. It was like premier program for adult learners. That's how I discovered actually uh, adult learning theory. And that was the beginning of my journey. And throughout this whole process of educating myself through undergrad program, and then I went to Loyola to study in master's program in organization development, that ability to think exploring different ideas, exploring concepts, digging deeper. That was my way of being. That's how I showed up in the world. So that's the through line, is the ability to think. think, I love it. It's so beautiful. That's the through line, the ability to think. Yeah. And this, I think that's a great transition. Before I move us forward, I just want to let listeners know that 
there is such a rich, interesting story that you could fill in those years of sure. leaving Croatia and doing all this stuff. It's quite a rich that was that was an ILA dinner conversation in Florida. <laughs> but when you talk about the ability to think then, what moved mm-hmm. you into encountering dialectical thinking? And can you say a little mm-hmm. bit about what dialectical thinking is? Well, I have to hear I have to tell you the story how I ended up in, in dialectical thinking <laughs> dialectical thinking because I discovered Robert Keegan and his work, adult development theory. And that theory was fascinating for me as a a way to understand my own evolution. So I used Keegan's work to develop myself as I was working full-time in a corporate environment and I was studying. I was looking for ways to use Keegan's work, adult development. I felt that this was the key to my question, how can we help people think better. I was working as a change management consultant, and I really noticed how the way people interpret their position, interpret their jobs was instrumental in the success of change effort or not. So I wanted to use, as I was working through my PhD, I wanted to use adult development theory to create a study of leaders of change. I reviewed all the literature and all the research that was done by using Keegan's framework. And then it wasn't really what I was looking for. It wasn't 100% there. I I couldn't go out and interview people and ask them to measure their development. They were leaders of change in the organization. So in the corporate world, you you don't really want to talk about personal (laughs) development, right? So there was this discrepancy between what Keegan was teaching and where I was working. And one day, a friend of mine from Paris called me up. She was familiar with my work and she said, Eva, I just came back from Brussels. I met a man there. I spent two days in workshop with him. I didn't understand a word what what he was saying. (laughs) It was absolutely brilliant. I think you need to talk to him. And then I said, give me his number. So she gave me the contact of Otto Lasky. And I got in touch with him. I read some of his writing, the same like my friend. I didn't understand a word of what he was writing at that time, but I felt that this was the key. This was the answer to my question, because he was teaching and explaining the structure of people's thinking. So this was the defining moment where he explained how the content of thinking could derive from structure. And then I I thought, okay, if I could study and access the structure of one's thinking, then I could influence content. I I think this is something that I recognize for myself, too, through going through kind of Kurt Fisher and Theo Dawson and Mike Maskell's work is the way that the underlying structure of our thinking will naturally lead us to notice and pay attention to and activate certain content of thinking. So I had a conversation with a consultant at Ikea who was working a lot on values. He said, values are so important. I said, you know, actually values are derived from the structure because what you care about has to do with what you can actually see. Mm -hmm. When you use the word structure, are you talking about the neural network in the brain? So, So my response would be this. I think that these models of thinking are a better and better approximations of what's going on in neural networks. 
We're okay. trying to model them essentially. So we mm-hmm. can't get at the really rich, vast complexity, but certain models are getting better at this. And I think what I hear you saying, Eva, and I've had some encounter with Otto Lasky's work, is that there's a nuance and a real rich substance to that that seems to model that process in a really good way. Yes, that's one side of it. But then we need to dig deeper into dialectical thinking and how it differs from formal logic. Everything that I have encountered in the process of studying cognitive development was grounded in formal logic. That's how we are educated. That's how we think. That's what this is our habitual way of being in the world, right? That's what Western educational system is based on, on formal logic. Now, in dialectical thinking, things are a little bit different, right? So first of all, let me uh, say a few words about dialectical thinking. Uh, Dialectical thinking is a philosophical discipline, not a theory. It's it's a specific form of, of cognitive organization defined by a three, known as a three-step movement, thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. However, what, what is not so well known is that dialectical thinking differs from formal logic in a way how it treats contradictions, right? In formal logic, we have that notion of falsehood. If something something is either correct or incorrect, A is always A, and if we encounter B, B is wrong, right, or false. Yes. So we try to correct and then find the right path. So viewing deviation from a predictable path is considered wrong. And we are insisting on correcting them and returning to its original path. That's formal logic. In dialectics, we say that, that what appears wrong is part of overall totality, and it has to be incorporated. So we have to enlarge conceptual space so that other parts, what is not A, is also part of bigger totality where everything is grounded in. So when I listen to you say this, I'm going to try to unpack it for listeners a little bit in my own words. First, I think of Hegel. I think of that dialectic that Hegel brought into the philosophical world. I also think of Michael Basich's and Mike Muscolo's work on that tax model, thesis, antithesis, conflict, and then synthesis. And there's a developmental process that happens within that. So I, I recognize those kind of strands. And what I hear you saying is that formal logic has always been treating the thesis and the antithesis as negating each other, so to speak. And dialectical thinking says, no, they're connected in some way, and we just have to see that connection. Wow. I I cannot even do justice to explaining what dialectical thinking is in, in scholarly terms. I just know that when I discovered dialectics the way Otto Lasky is teaching it, that was it. I could not find better way of pursuing my work than digging deeper into dialectical thinking and making it practical. Eva told us a little bit about the kind of core of dialectical thinking. Uh, Mm -hmm. I know that there's a part of this called thought forms. 
Can you say a little yes. bit more about what are these thought forms and how many were there in Otto Lasky's world and what function did they play? Okay, there is, again, there is intro to this. And the introduction is uh, uh, understanding the difference between Keegan's work and Otto Lasky's work. Keegan is has a theory of adult development, a stage-based theory, right? And it's holistic in a sense. He is explaining how people relate themselves to their environment. That's the essence of his theory. Yes. Now, Otto Lasky comes along and Otto Lasky says, well, we can't really look at adult development holistically. We have to separate different lines of development. So we have to look at cognitive development as a separate line from social emotional line of development. How we relate to our environment is social emotional line. So he use dialectics to separate those two and then integrate them together through those assessments. And as I was thinking about doing research with successful leaders of change, people who successfully transformed their organizations, I was really interested in applying adult development theory to observe what is it that they have that other people don't have that makes them makes them very successful in implementing change. And as I was thinking about methodology, I thought, okay, uh, I could use Keegan's methodology, right? And then I thought, there are some limitations. I mean, how can I bring Keegan to a corporate world and study CEOs of large companies, right? I, I can't go and say, hey, can I measure your development, right? It just didn't feel, feel right. When I discovered Otto's dialectical thinking, then I thought, okay, I can go and I can identify their patterns of thinking that perhaps lead them to be successful in implementing change. I was hypothesizing, right? Maybe it has something to do with how they apply dialectical thought forms. And I will talk about thought forms in a moment, right? And that's that led me to doing this research. And it proved to be the right decision because I was able to identify them. So when you say patterns of thinking, is yes. that what you mean by thought forms? Right. Well, thought forms are, there is a little more to that than just patterns of thinking, right? My first encounter, Eva, with dialectical thinking was through getting exposed to Michael Basich's. In the right. first issue of Integral Review, Sarah Ross pinged him mm -hmm. and got him to contribute a piece. And I read through this and I thought, wow, that's really interesting. So that was my first encounter with that before Otto Lasky. Can you say a bit about what's the relationship between them? Michael Basches did brilliant work within that dialectical thinking realm as a philosophical discipline. He went back and he studied dialect, the evolution of dialectical thinking since Plato. And he singled out 24 thought forms. And thought forms are a constellation of concepts. He called them schemata. And he used those schemata to study, to empirically assess adolescents and adults. That's his contribution. So he designed an interview. So this was a very, very unique and novel way of conducting an empirical study. So he conducted an interview in which he focused on uh, asking interviewees specific questions on, on specific topic. Right? He introduced the concept of education, and then he talked to freshmen, seniors in college, and then faculty. 
And he identified that more junior students had fewer presence of thought forms in their thinking and they're more sporadic and they're they're not consistently used and, and they're not used in coordinated way. And then he studied faculty and he noticed that faculty members uh, use thought forms in a more coordinated way. And he was able to show empirically how adults can differ in terms of how they express themselves in thinking dialectically. He identified those 24 thought forms, he numbered them, and then he was able to quantify his research, to observe the structure of thinking and explain the difference in complexity of people's thinking. Eva, so I've met Michael Basish's, I, I think his work is fascinating with what he did. Can you distinguish what additional things Otto Lasky did with Michael Basish's work? Otto Lasky integrated a number of different theories, and he really took Otto, Michael Basich's work uh, at the whole new level. So don't forget that Otto Lasky was a Frankfurt scholar. So he was studying with Adorno and for 10 years. So he was really a scholar of dialectical thinking. And so he recognized the contribution that Michael Basiches did, but he also elevated it to the whole new level, right? He identified those four, what we call four quadrants or four classes of thought forms, context, process, relationship, and transformation. And then he organized 24 thought forms by adding four more and distributed them across four quadrants. So he had a table of 28 thought forms. And those 28 thought forms represented 28 different ways of looking at reality, organized around those four quadrants. And each quadrant represents a specific position of how we see the world how we experience life. So we have context. And in context, we are looking at structure, at the big picture, how things are organized, how they, this is typical like structure of a system. We are observing the system. And then we have underlying processes. We look at different processes of things emerging or disappearing. So how is change happening, right? Change, Otto's work is, Grounded in Roy Basker's work. Critical realism. Critical realism, yes. So Roy Basker's notion was that the reality is punctuated by absences, right? Change doesn't happen out of nowhere. It happens because something is missing, something is not there. So we need to identify what is it in the system that is absent that we need to bring into existence. That's the essence of process quadrant or class of thought forms. And then we have relationships. And in the relationship quadrant, we are looking at how different ideas or different entities or or, uh, different views that are unrelated come together, how we can bring them together. What's the common ground? How are things intrinsically related within the system? And especially in the value system, how do we bring together the opposing value systems? So when we understand And we have access to those three quadrants through the use of thought forms. When we understand at the deep level those three domains or three quadrants or three classes, then we can truly transform 
the system in our thoughts first and then outwardly. So that's the essence of Otto Lasky's work. What what I know, Eva, is that that seems overwhelming in terms of how a leader in an organization would make use of that. So I know in your PhD, part of your challenge was to condense that down to something more usable. Can you talk about that? And how did you end up with 12 thought forms? Yes, true. So I was so excited after completing my dissertation, I wanted to go out in the world because I was studying the presence of thought forms in my leader's thinking. And then I identified that those who are really, who were successful in transforming their organizations, they were, they used thought forms abundantly and in a very coordinated way. So they were able to simultaneously see the big picture, see those interconnections, identifying absences, seeing how transformation needs to happen, diving deep into those four quadrants simultaneously. So that was my finding. And I saw that each leader had a very unique pattern of thinking and using those thought forms. They all have the commonality of using a large number of thought forms at the same time, but the constellation of those thought forms differed. So I had 10 participants in a study and 10 very different profiles, so to speak, cognitive wow. profiles, right, of each person. So each person, and as I was giving them feedback, they identified immediately how I how they could develop further because we, we identified a class of thought forms that was not maybe as developed as other classes of thought forms. Okay, so I get the picture now. If I go back and summarize it a little bit, I know, you know, we can talk about Keegan's stage model and you go from socialized mind to self-authoring. That's the typical move. That's a big, undifferentiated process that takes many years. Now, what you've described is a much more granular set of processes that you can distinguish from each other, that people can recognize more easily and notice what is different about them. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, absolutely. This is very accurate. So Eva, if you were to have to give us one thing that really distinguishes this model, this dialectical thought form model from others, what would you summarize that as? Well, this is the model that really enables us to observe inner conversations, inner dialogue with yourself in real time. Great. Then question becomes, how did you make this more practical and useful? And and how did you end up with only 12 thought forms that could still do that job? After completing my dissertation, I was very excited about having that cognitive tool where I could help people develop their thinking that desire that was lasted like a lifetime. And I designed my first workshop and I used those 28 thought forms organized around four quadrants. And I had a group of executives who were so also excited about this material and this work, but they could grasp the essence of each thought, not the the essence, but maybe the meaning of each thought form. But they recognized it was overwhelming. I could not get them to use those thought forms in a sustained way. After yeah. a while, they went back to their habitual way of thinking. And then my other mentor at that time, Daryl Connor, asked me if it would be possible to maybe simplify and condense those thought forms into a fewer number so that they can, they are more 
manageable. And I thought, my gosh, I'm like committing heresy here. If I do this and I touch Otolowski's work, it's not good. But I tried really to look at the essence of each thought form and combine them. So what I came up with was a table of 12 thought forms, where I, instead of seven in one class of thought forms, I had three. But those three contain all seven in a sense, right? But not immediately. I think of how I understand some development of the term chunking. Were you chunking. able to take concepts and constructs at a certain level and kind of synthesize them at a slightly higher order of abstraction that chunk them together? Yes, exactly. That's correct. So I came up with those 12 thought forms and I was running another workshop with another group of executives who were all leading, they were in the midst of major transformation of their organization. And we did this workshop as a working session where I used thought forms to help them stimulate their thinking and to identify what they're not seeing. And this was a winning combination. They were so excited about this because their view of reality became so rich in real time. In that two-day workshop, they were able to completely reimagine what was possible. They they immediately saw what was missing. They came up with uh, the action plan, how to do change di- changes differently. This was very encouraging for me to continue working with ThoughtForms. And then I shared uh, the table with, with Otto Lasky, and he looked at this table, and I was very apprehensive. This was another defining moment, right? I was very apprehensive, and I told him what I did, and I said, I would like you to give me your feedback and to tell me if this is something I could continue doing. Uh, are you okay with this? And he looked at this table, and he said, hmm. I think it's brilliant. And then I thought, okay, now <laughs> I have a black. Did you black. think I'm kind of a big deal? <laughs> no, I never thought I was a big deal. I was always very humble. <laughs> but I think that's a good description of these pivotal moments where, you know, you do stuff, you investigate, you try it out, you play with it, but you, you're you so immersed in it, you don't have a perspective on it. And to get your teacher's blessing that you've done good work. Yes. That's a big so, stepping stone. So at that time, I didn't have time to write anything about thought forms or dialectic thoughts from framework or anything. I was doing workshops. I was teaching. I was working in uh, in a corporate environment. We agreed that Otto would write a book and uh, he wrote a dialectical primer. And I was delivering another workshop in Germany and with another group of executives. And they validated that the framework was very powerful for their work. They could go back on Monday morning and apply those thought forms right away to their work. So that was the beginning of my new phase of my professional engagement. Well, I think this is where we're going to kind of leave readers curious about the unfolding story <laughs> as we kind of wind down now. I, and there's two things I want to mention. One is that I'm very much looking forward to Eva and I are going to work together on a project where we will get to bring these dialectical thought forms into a group and practice with some of the stuff that I've been doing. So this is going to be very exciting for me. Uh, But I also know that you have a very dear to your heart project. So one of the other things that I know, Eva, is that Otto was a very complex thinker and not always easy to understand. You've mentioned that before. 
and that part of one of your projects now is to give people an access to his thinking and work. Could you say more about that project? Yes. Anything I would write about the work of Otto Lasky would be a very impoverished version of his power of his work. And this work has changed the life of not only my life in a profound way, but the lives of anyone who was studying with him. And I felt that Otto's book is completely inaccessible for most people because it's a 611-page monster that it's very difficult to to process. And I did because I was working and I was using it for my PhD. But I feel that Otto Zalaski's work needs to be better known, that the world needs to know the power of his teaching. Now, he is a dialectical thinker. He's a social scientist, but he's also a musicologist, and he's also a visual artist, and he's a poet that people don't know about him. So that the richness of his life needed to be recorded somewhere. And I decided to do a movie about his life. So now I'm working with my cousin, who is a well-known filmmaker in Croatia, and we asked Otto Lasky to create the movie. And now we are at the final stage of creating a documentary about Otto Lasky's life. And I think this is going to portray Otto Lasky's work and life and legacy in a much better way than I would ever be able to express in my way of um, speaking. So now, Eva, what I also know is that now that you've got these 12 thought forms and you've been able to create structures for people to engage with them, you're going out and doing work with this. What's going on with that work? Where is it headed? What have you seen when you're doing it? I'm doing, I'm coaching managers, directors, executives in large corporations. And I also noticed that each time when we discuss any topic, any issue they have, first, they always come start with some kind of tension that's happening within themselves or uh, in their environment. And I immediately use my skills from interviewing and using thought forms to identify what what they're not able to see. And then I use thought forms and actually introduce table of thought forms and walk them through the table and give them a tool to think about themselves, to think about the role they're playing in the organization and to think about the larger environment they're embedded in. And they consistently report that this experience was life-changing. And that gives me really hope that we can develop leaders in, in a new way by giving them this tool and helping them develop their thinking. You know, it makes me think, Jonathan, of some of the work you've been doing and some of the programs that you've been developing. We have a whole entire episode on that. I mean, it's just, it sounds like this could be another powerful tool in your bag of tricks there, sir. Well, and that's why I'm so excited that Eve and I are going to do this project in Sweden together over the next couple of years. I just want to thank you, Eva. I know this is always a challenge to condense the richness of what you've done into a short conversation like this, but you've done brilliantly with it. And I think it will really pique the curiosity of leaders and listeners and academics in the field to pay attention and say, hey, there's something here that could be really useful for us to learn more about. Thank you. Yeah, I was hoping that someone would take notice of not my work, but Otto's uh, legacy. What you've been able to do with it in terms of 
making it more pragmatic for people in the world. Well, Eva, we we often will ask people what they've been streaming or watching or something that's caught their eye at the end of episodes. But we're going to leave listeners in a little bit of a place of curiosity. And maybe you can come back and talk about the documentary after it's finished. We would love to learn more about that as a resource and as something that people can access and engage in. You know, as I said at the beginning of the conversation today, I think this is something that is a fascinating topic. There's a lot here. I am looking forward to learning more because as I said in the beginning, I have not jumped into this pool at all. Jonathan, I know you have, and Eva, you've been in the deep end. <laughs> and so we are so yeah. thankful for your work. Thank you for having me. And I will let you know when it's out and ready to be shared with the world. Okay. Okay, Jonathan, another adventure completed another adventure on our, completed. On our trek. <laughs> right. Be well, everyone. Take care. Thank you so much, Eva. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Wow, Jonathan, you know, Eva's kind of this, the, the first part of that conversation where she's talking about uh, where and when she grew up is powerful. This is, again, about how does the context help shape us? And I know there's, you know, articles about lifelong learning of leadership and how this trajectory of socialization and experience is early. And we see this in a number of these conversations, how these really rich Thing. So Eva grew up in this totalitarian regime, and there were such constraints on the thinking there. You really were in jail. I, I know other people who grew up in the Czech Republic. And I said, you know, it's basically, if you say certain things, you, your family goes to jail. And the title then, you know, if people could only think better, I think really came out of her experience in understanding the way those societal constraints limited people's ability to think well. Mm. So powerful. I'm listening right now to a book called All the Light That We Cannot See. And it's about World War II. It takes place in that in that time period. And and yes, I mean, it's just ever present that if you thought for yourself, you had your own opinions, you would be killed. You would be shot. You're dead. So it's yeah. literally life and death in some of these situations throughout history. Yeah. So then she got into kind of some of her research and and there was such a rich history and and she's really representing a different set of connections so the notion of dialectical thinking from michael bassich's as contrasted with formal logic and being a philosophical discipline and a form of cognitive organization so this notion of thesis antithesis and synthesis very hegelian in that sense it's also very similar to Mike Muscolo's model. And there's a future podcast for you. For sure. So then she got into how the content of thinking is really derivative of the structure of thinking. And I see this in other branches, Theo Dawson's work as well, Kurt Fisher's, Mike Muscolo's. You really do see, and I do this in debriefing, how the structure informs the content. And then the work that she derived from Otto Lasky around how there are patterns of these thought forms and how they can be organized into different kind of meta categories of four main chunks and then 
details within those and that table of thought forms that she's able to use with her coaching clients. And she talked about kind of what I consider chunking for executives, how to give a simplification of a complex model that allows them to make distinctions that help them differentiate their perception of experience and that this is life-changing for them. Well, and it gets to, in some ways, some of the themes of what we've discussed in this series, this notion of vertical and horizontal. It's a very useful heuristic, but it's also simplistic. The tension that Chuck and John experienced of how do we communicate and operationalize some of these concepts, the snowman model, and honor the complexity, but do so in a way that is understandable. (laughs) Because this is a topic, for instance, that I need to dive deep into. I still don't have a strong grasp, but I know there's something here, right? The title of the episode says it all. Okay, sir. Thank you very much. Have a great week. I'll see you next week. Next week it is. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.